0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: You're now tuned into the Pod Awful, Pod Awful Channel. Pod Awful. bi women's social club. The Dazed and convicted. Two-party cool radio. The
2: show came. The devil's advocate. The projection booth. Awful flips. Pod, Pod, Awful, Pod Awful, Awful dot dot net. net. I have control of your TV you're a souvenir? Looks like this is a place to be. Brad's here of all ages. Where's
0: uh, Priscilla? I think she's waiting for the Kingston train.
2: It was the kind of place where nothing much ever happened. The nightmare of every parent in town has just arrived.
3: The disciples of the devil are invading our town and threatening to steal our children away from us. Turn up the power, turn up the lights, we're
1: on a mission and we rock all night.
2: Now here comes the biggest thing to hit Mill Basin ever, and they try to stop it. They don't understand what a great honor this is. They didn't have to pick Mill Basin for their first concert.
3: I any real harm
4: to them. Right the heat, I haven't heard this song on their album before. Through, and
2: the but once their fears are laid to rest, the stage is set, the message given, the virus of evil.
3: The loose.
2: Oh, you really do know how to take care of your old stepdad, don't you? Yes.
1: I do. Oh, where have you been? I told you not to go out tonight. Did you go and see that show after I told you not to?
2: I love you, Dad. Why do we have to study all these dead writers? I mean, there's a poet alive today who writes rings around him. Damien. Damien. I'm tired of living Damien. the past. Damien. I'm living now. Damien. I said, fed-
3: Brought you a present,
1: (laughs) Flowers of Evil. What in the hell is going on? will ignite the flame of death.
2: Get that man! What'd you do
5: with my kids, you
2: son of a bitch?
5: Your kids? You had your chance. Now they're mine.
2: everything your parents ever told you about rock and roll just might be true black roses the hottest band this side of hell black roses
6: hello cleveland we are the projection booth and we are here to rock you I'm your host, Mike White. On guitar, Mr. Rob St. Mary.
5: And you know, if you play this podcast backwards, you can hear our message of praise to the Dark Lord. And, yes.
6: guess. and the man with the magic fingers, Mike McBeardo McPadden, author of Heavy Metal Movies. Greetings. Greetings. This week we are looking at the 1988 film Black Roses from John Fasano. The film tells the tale of a heavy metal group of rockers who come to a small town only to seduce the innocent with metal music and satanic rituals. The youth start wearing black t-shirts, talking back to their parents, and turning into demons. Will the power of the high school's English teacher, Mr. Morehouse, and transcendental poetry turn the tide to stem the Satanist reign? I bet you can guess. As for our guest, Mr. McBeardo, when did you first see Black Roses, and what was your initial impression, sir?
0: I first saw Black Roses in 1988 when it came out on video uh, at, I believe I rented it from Vinny's Video on Avenue J in Brooklyn, where I grew up. And I was uh, attracted, of course, by the legendary, still unique, raised cover which is, like, so impossible to describe to people. But it was, like, a relief map, like, where they show, like, you know, oh, there's the Rocky Mountains, and I can touch it with my fingers. This was black roses wrapped around the neck of a guitar that actually – leapt off the page, this little plastic sculpture that was on top of the cardboard
6: VHS box. The VHS box is the first thing I think of when I think of this movie, because I worked at a blockbuster, and yeah, walking by the horror section and seeing that video cover, you knew you were in for something special when you rented that.
5: I saw this like two weeks ago at about <laughs> 2.30 in the morning when I couldn't sleep, and uh, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I guess maybe had a bout of insomnia or something, I just couldn't sleep, and I got up, and I'm like, i got to watch this movie for the show. And I knew that it was a heavy metal movie from the 80s, but I had no idea what I was getting into. And I think um, watching it at 2.30 in the morning is probably the best time uh, for me. Yeah, there's a lot going on in here, and I can't wait to really talk about it because there's a lot of bizarreness.
0: See, I think if you had seen – if you had held and caressed the video box, you would have had an idea of what you were getting into.
5: You know, that video box kind of reminds me of how Mike and I uh, waxed Rhapsodic on Frankenhooker about the want a Date uh, oh, yeah it was on the yes. Frankenhooker yes. box. <laughs> want a
6: Date? Yeah, there were only a handful of those kind of special boxes at the video store, so each one of them really stood out well, you know, like the, the ones, w- I think there was like a mirror mirror, the oh, VHS, right? yeah. where you could yeah. you see your reflection slightly, sort and they're of. very yeah. warped. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was like... It was it's funny the way that they would try to take some of the ideas that they could do on like a, a standee for the theater and shrink it down to you know that that VHS size. If I was a better man, I would be able to tell you the exact dimensions of a VHS tape like that, but unfortunately, I can't just rattle that off. So shame on me. Well, I remember the video box, and then I have heard about this movie for a long time. Our friends over at Outside the Cinema. Always talk about this film, and they just recently did a audio commentary for it. Oh, I think cool. just a few weeks before we recorded this, and they went through and they even have a video up on YouTube, at least today they do, and I'm hoping that they will when we post this episode because I'll post it with the episode of those guys, picture in picture, watching Black Roses and commenting on it throughout the entire film. Years ago, I remember Bill constantly, you know, doing the <laughs> And then I had not watched it, you know, even though I knew of the video box and everything. And I didn't realize I was watching an earlier John Fasano film just last year when uh, Joe from the Daily Grindhouse podcast stopped by my house and we watched uh, Rock and Roll Nightmare together. And that was my first Thor film. So right. I was very happy to take that in. And not knowing. What that one was about, I was kind of afraid that Black Roses would be more of the same of that, and I was glad that it is kind of like a quantum leap between the two films.
0: Well, I mean, it's it's kind of fascinating that uh, John Fasano, in like three years, 86, 87, 88, created these three cornerstone heavy metal movies, and each one is, as you said, a quantum leap forward over the other. He begins with Zombie Nightmare, with Thor. Uh, in the very un like character, he's kind of like an, an amateur softball star. Somehow they got Adam West to wander in and out of that film. And then there's Rock and Roll Nightmare, changing the first word of the title to a compound word. And that is a big leap forward, because at least they're like hand puppets and flying uh, stupid octopi that get thrown at each other. And then Black Roses, which is really like a real movie. I wish he had kept
6: going. And they leave Black Roses open for a sequel, oh, sure. you know, not, not to get into spoiler territory right away here. And I know we will be getting into a lot of spoilers. So people listening at home, please go out and pick up Black Roses. The DVD, it looks better than this movie really has a right <laughs> yeah. to look. I mean, it's not one of those movies that really should only be seen on VHS. But I think having that video box and bringing it home from the video store for you, Mike, was probably quite... A, a great experience, you know, different than putting in the DVD and seeing this pristine version that we get these days.
0: Yeah. I mean, you have to remember, I'm 45. So, you know, this VHS nostalgia that goes on now, to me, that era was bittersweet because I started going to, you know, I started seeing these films in the theater. Um, I started going to high school in Manhattan uh, when, in 1982. And I was two blocks away from 42nd Street, so I would just uh, – or two train stops. So I was always hanging out. And this was a time where, yes, a 14-year-old white kid weirdly could just walk in and out of the theaters on 42nd Street. and Nobody batted a crack pipe. You know, and I really love the theater experience of this. By 1988, it really had shifted. And uh, I had come to accept that this was the new 42nd Street, the video store. And Black Roses was a, a great surprise. I'm not a big horror comedy guy. And I, I really uh, think, like, the late 80s is kind of where it turned for me. But Black Roses works, uh, it's it's very funny. And I think the parts that are funny, like, um, you know, the big pussy stuff, which we'll get to, you know, are intentional and they're witty. But it, it never kind of teeters over into trauma-like parody. You know, they play it straight, which I appreciated. And... It's, you know, it's off the wall. It's really hilarious. And uh, I love it. I didn't really pick up on the comedy too much,
4: to be
6: honest. I think watching this with a group, especially a group with more beer cans than there are people, would probably help this out quite a bit. Yeah. Let's get into the plot a little bit. I touched on it a little bit up top, but well the movie begins with a very interesting scene where we've got uh, a group of demons basically performing this concert and this guy outside the door, this older white guy trying to get in and everything, finally opening up this door and all of these, uh, for lack of a better term, rock and roll zombies kind of come streaming out of the the theater. And then move ahead or something to another part of the world, and we've got this small town, small Canadian town, from the accents and the amount of denim that's going on in this town, small Canadian town where black roses... this rock and roll group is going to come and play this concert at their high school auditorium and everybody is so excited about it except for the parents the parents are really nervous about what's going to happen with this concert and we've got the whole struggle between the parents and the youth and it's kind of reminded me a little bit of like those uh 1950s films you know not necessarily blackboard jungle but just kind of had that uh tension there between the teeny boppers and the straight parents you know juvenile
5: delinquent films and then also uh i thought footloose and (laughs) there's a thing in there where the one kid says we've never had a rock concert in this town and i'm thinking to myself okay this is 1987 88 okay it's supposed to be contemporary Rock and roll music has been around at this point for at least 30 years and literally have never had a rock concert in this town since the late 50s. Hmm, okay. Uh, is this the land the time forgot? Is that what you're trying to tell me? It's Canada, rock. Well, it's not only Canada, <laughs> but you know, I think it's supposed to be America but it ends up being Canadian and you can tell by certain certain giveaways as you were saying accents and signs one of the things like you were talking about the production quality on this reminded me of like an after school special at times so ah, interesting it's not only B movie acting it's canadian B movie <laughs> acting which is if if you grow up in detroit and you watch channel 9 you watch the CBC, you know exactly what I'm talking about.
0: You know, the town is called Mill Basin, which I always thought was really weird because Fasano uh, at least uh, worked a lot in the New York area. Mill Basin is a neighborhood in Brooklyn. And it's just, it's near where I, I grew up in Flatbush. And uh, its most distinguishing characteristic is that it, it's the home of Kings Plaza, Brooklyn's first shopping mall. And I always thought, what is this bizarre homage to Mill Basin? They have a really good Carvel there.
6: Now you're going to have to explain what Carvel is to people in Detroit. Hello,
7: I'm Carvel Cookie Puss, the Celestial Person, the new Carvel ice cream cake made fresh daily at your participating Carvel ice cream store. Now for St. Patrick's Day, I'd like to introduce my friend, Cookie O'Puss. My name is Cookie O'Puss, the fresh Carvel ice cream cake. You can also be sending either of us to a friend by calling his toll-free number, and we own on most major credit cards, too. Thanks and a grand date to you now. Carvel
0: is an uh, East Coast uh, ice cream store, and uh, Mill Basin was one of the uh, flagship franchises. And uh, I always wondered if Fisano had had a really good Carvel experience and decided to immortalize the town, the, the neighborhood
5: that way those folks in other parts of the country would be like James Carville, the, the guy from down Louisiana who does all the commentary on CNN, that guy.
6: So this movie was filmed in Dundas, which I could swear it was filmed in Kitchener could just because it looks like <laughs> Kitchener to me, you
5: know? <laughs> That's Which is funny because I think I've been to Dundas. It's on the way to Toronto, if you're heading there from Detroit, and I may actually have distant relatives who live in that area because they seem to populate basically everywhere between toronto and detroit so i I think i've maybe with my dad rolled through uh, graveyards looking for uh, long dead relatives in that town
6: so some 30 some years after rock and roll is invented it comes to the town of, of mill basin which i kept wanting to call mill valley for some reason when i was watching this and is that from another movie or something mill
5: valley there's hill valley which is uh back to the future
6: I kept thinking of, like, um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which I know is Santa Rosa, but for some reason I kept thinking of, of California and Invasion of the Body Snatchers as I was watching the, the first little bit of this. So it's interesting the way that um, Black Roses really, the band is, It everybody's so excited. All the kids are so excited that they're coming to town, and they're, you know, decorating their, their folders, and they're just kind of have this hero worship, even though I don't know if they've necessarily even heard any of the music.
5: <laughs> Well, I guess they never tour. This is the thing. It must be like the studio era Beatles, because there's a line in there where they say, "Yeah, they've put out these records, but they've, nobody's ever seen them live. They've never toured, and they're coming here to do their tour. So they were like, uh, I guess, magically picked out of a hat.
6: Everybody wants to go there. You know, that that's the place to kick off a tour, and not only kick off a tour, but like play there several nights in a row, which is very interesting as well, too. In the high school auditorium. Yes, and then it's like the parents are really concerned that they're going to be playing at the high school auditorium but they've already booked it. So, I don't know. I don't want to get into the logic of the film because that way lies madness.
0: And don't forget they tour, you know, not in a van, not in a bus, but in Lamborghinis. Yeah, which it must be really tough to carry your equipment in those things, <laughs> yeah. two of them. Two Lamborghinis, yeah. That's like it's the caravan, the convoy is two Lamborghinis. Like <laughs> two
6: Lamborghinis and five guys.
5: But you know, they're just not metal enough because those Lamborghinis should be rolling down the street with a woman in a bikini sort of laying across the hood, because isn't that what every Lamborghini comes with? Yeah,
6: Tawny Katane kind of
5: thing.
0: We're a
3: good people here in Mill Basin. We are a church-going people, and we are a law-abiding people. Our police don't have to carry guns like they do in the big cities. And our children grow up to be fine young citizens we can be proud of, because we have had no corrupting influences here to speak of.
6: They basically have duped the town of Mill Basin because they come in and they start playing this very kind of, I don't know, it's, it kind of reminded me of some of the slower journey songs, you know, and they're, they're doing this while the parents, while the PTA and everybody are sitting out in the auditorium and literally as soon as the last guy closes the door.
0: <laughs> Ellen, are you satisfied?
7: Well, they are awfully loud, but uh, the children do seem to be enjoying themselves. I don't suppose there's any real harm to them.
6: Then all hell breaks loose and it's time to start worshipping Satan in the auditorium. <laughs> and it's really like a campaign. Like the, It takes them several... Shows to really start to get the teens of Mill Basin involved with this whole idea of uh, Satanism, even though like it's not really overt, you know. Other than like towards the end where we see some pentagrams and stuff. Otherwise, it's like there's just some weird shit going on, like people turning into like fleshy zombie kind of things in the audience. Which I wasn't sure if they turned back or not, or what was going on, or if maybe they were like the non-believers and they got turned into this stuff. But really it's the the stuff that happens outside of the auditorium that I find the most interesting because all of a sudden the teens start really dressing differently and acting very, they're antisocial and everything, which was uh, pretty great to see that transformation.
5: Julie, what do you think Emerson's getting at here?
2: Emerson?
0: Ralph Waldo Emerson. That song that they start is, you know, it is a classic 80s power ballad and it's called My Hometown. And then once the old folks uh, skedaddle, that's only that they begin to seduce to the dark side. The youth with is called Rock Invasion. (laughs) So, I mean, they literally launch a rock invasion by singing Rock Invasion.
5: And you're right, it does take a while. It's it's a sustained campaign. I, I'm not sure what the meaning of that song is. Can you explain what? what <laughs> – uh, 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 is, is there subtext involved? I, I, I'm not sure.
6: Uh, the first time I watched this movie a couple weeks ago, I had a hard time keeping a lot of the people straight as far as the – the male teens, let me put it this way, are somewhat distinguished looking. We've got, you know, the the main male teen that we're kind of following around, who just is very, very white toast, you know, very white mm-hmm. bread.
2: I want to paint this town red.
6: And we've got the guy who's like more the bodybuilder with the earring, and I really only remember him from the scene with with Vinnie Pastore. And then the girls, I just, I guess maybe because the girls transform as they're going through, but they all kind of transform into what looks like the same girl to me. So I had a real <laughs> hard time keeping the girls straight. And then I had a hard time with the older white men too, because everybody seemed to be wearing that kind of porno mustache at this
5: point. too. <laughs> yeah. 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 The teacher, I wrote that down. I go, uh, porn actor, lit teacher. And then the other thing is the kids all seem to be just maybe two years younger than the porn lit teacher. It yeah. just yeah. like yeah. the kids don't seem to be teenagers. They are all in their probably mid to late twenties.
0: Yeah. If, if a day. Yeah. I, uh, You know, I always enjoy an old teenager in a movie. They really stand out in Black Roses.
5: That's what I thought was funny, is there's this scene where the one girl in class starts to seduce the teacher. Right. And you get this whole thing where it's like, I've never done this before. And it's like, really? Like, (laughs) are you kidding me? Like, come on. She never did that while she was not going to any rock and roll shows.
6: (laughs) There's like the principal or – no, it's the mayor's wife – Right? Who like starts this whole thing about?
2: I'm always interested in your little students and their little books and their little essays. Oh, and especially your little teacher's pet. you Julie out of this. Oh, so you knew exactly who I meant.
6: What is her problem, man? <laughs> it's like starts laying into him about like how dumb high school is, and I'm like, you were probably just in high school like a year before because <laughs> you look that old. You right. see? Because she was old looking. Okay, never mind.
5: the other thing about the teacher is he's got like this girlfriend, right? And I guess, and I I couldn't tell all the women apart. (laughs) They
6: don't look the same.
5: They kind of argue. And there's this one scene where he gets like fed up and he goes home. And this is where the film lost me on rooting for this teacher is okay. He's a single guy and he goes and gets a beer and he pours it into a glass. (laughs) I'm like, really? A pissed off single guy drinking beer out of a glass. Now, it's not like he had a keg in his house and he needed the glass. No. He just cracks open the can and pours himself a glass. I'm like, no. No single man, no single straight man would ever do that in a fit of rage. So I'm just saying the, uh, the the teacher totally lost me at that point.
6: I couldn't really believe how much I was enjoying this movie as 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 I was watching it. Though I really did not think that it was going to be nearly as good as it was, and I had a great time watching
0: this. Yeah, it moves fast, and I tell you, it it's better now than when it first came out. It has aged extremely well. Oh, it is such a time capsule. Yeah. yeah. Because I remember thinking, like back, you know, back in the '80s and stuff, those puppets, the rubber faces and the glowing effects to denote possession, it looked so goofy. And now, you know, in the CGI era, it's such a breath of fresh air. It's like, oh my god, there's weight and there's presence and there's something happening on the screen that wasn't made up on somebody's laptop. Yeah,
6: because we do get a couple
0: demons. We get like this demonoid
6: creature that attacks Vinnie Pastore. Let's, let's talk about that sure. scene. I know you want to talk about that one. We just see Vinny Pastore in one scene, and he just kind of shows up
0: and makes fun of his <laughs> son. Well, Do you remember Can what I? he says? I sure remember, but you go right ahead. <laughs> Only two types of men wear earrings, pirates
5: and faggots, and I don't see no ship in our driveway. Which, once again, completely throws me off, because, like I said, Canadian B-movie acting, and somehow Goomba Dad is in the middle of, like, you know, a suburban Toronto somehow. I don't know. But how the hell did he show up here?
6: Witness protection program.
5: Well, it's the most obvious witness protection program on the planet. He would stick out like a sore thumb.
6: It's like my blue heaven. Exactly. Exactly. Sun goes out, he's he's disgraced Because he does have an earring And he's just like, Arr, I don't know what he's talking about Then the record That he was listening to Mysteriously comes back on <laughs> And uh, I love the part Where it's kind of like melty and everything right. And Pastore sticks his finger Onto the melty record, which I wouldn't necessarily Recommend, and it has that amazing Sploosh sound effect <laughs> That you've heard a thousand times Before <laughs> And it's like, oh, that is so good. And then a demonoid comes out of the speaker and attacks him. And it, that is when the world knew Vincent Pastore was something special and that there would be more from this man. <laughs> yeah.
5: it, I, it reminded me of Videodrome where he gets, you know, what? the whole TV. I was like, "It's Radiodrome. It's amazing, and it's eating one of the Sopranos. It's it's crazy."
6: And he's doing that whole like holding on to the creature while he's yeah. like you know, shifting back and forth. It <laughs> reminded me of like when Frank Drebin throws that towel at one of you know, the bad guys, and the guys, nah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we've got that demon, which really reminded me when that came up. I mean, because that's one of the first demons that we see in the film, other than the the opening, which I had a hard time the first time. I I watched this kind of connecting the opening to the rest of the film. I was like, was this a flashback? Is this what's going to happen? You know, did JJ Abrams write this film? And this is going to be the beginning of the third act because that's how he always writes his scripts or what is this going to be? And when we see that little demon come out of the speaker, I was like, Oh man, this is rock and roll nightmare all over again. So I was so happy when the next demon kind of shows up and it's much more fully formed, and it that one, the one that the the girl turns into with the long skinny neck, really reminded me a lot of Henrietta from um, Evil Dead Two. Sure, you know, yeah.
3: I'll swallow your soul. I'll swallow your soul. I'll swallow your soul.
6: Swallow this. To your point, Mike, it looks great, yeah. you know, compared to what we've seen with these shitty CGI creatures these days. Yeah, which is just looking at nothing. And there's definitely a danger even though the creature's neck is only about like pencil width kind of thing. <laughs> right. yeah. You would think that he could just strangle it or something but that's okay. So it was uh, yeah, it was it was good to see that one show up.
5: The head of the band, which this is kind of a <laughs> giveaway. The, the, the head of the band, his name is Damien. Damien, so, I mean, that's yes. an obvious uh, omen reference, and you know, I, I had a friend when I was a kid. His name was Damon, but everyone called him Damien because they <laughs> saw the omen. So,
2: look at me, Damien. It's all for you.
6: Has there ever been a nice person named Damien?
0: Uh, Damien Quinn, a kid I went to. Our Lady Alberta Christian's grammar school. With. <laughs> All right, good. I'm glad there's at least one. <laughs> but yeah, Damien. I mean, th- the silliest name ever. I think is um, in the movie Angel Heart. Uh, Robert De Niro's character, you know, with the uh, you know the very elegant man of wealth and taste, with the sharp fingernails, is named Lou. Cipher. And at the end, Mickey Rourke is like, oh, my God, Lou Cipher. <laughs> <laughs> Neil Bogg got himself yeah, exactly. backwards. <laughs> oh, and if, yeah, Mickey Rourke's name in that, I think, is
5: Harry Angel. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> yeah.
0: uh, and he's not nearly
6: that hairy. You know? Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh,
5: yeah. One of the things that I find interesting with him is that he's like, oh, yeah, we're just a regular band. And he's like having this conversation with his teacher or, you know, with PTA member or whatever and then in the end kind of reminds me of this kind of Bill Hicks skit that uh is pretty solid when he was talking about the satanic panic of the 80s and Judas Priest and the whole idea that you know why would a band want to kill off its fans
2: what are these guys in the band doing i'm fucking sick of it i am fucking sick of it <laughs> I'm sick of the touring. I'm sick of making $400,000 a fucking night. I'm sick of the free drugs, the free booze, and the groupies blowing me darn to fucking dust.
5: I'm in a rut and I won't out.
7: We got all those concerts coming up. I know it sucks. Unless... (laughs) Ian... Nigel, come in.
5: I just had a fucking idea, man. What if,
4: Ian, what if, let's just say what if.
1: Open your mind real wide now. What if we kill the fucking audience? Could I go back to my day job?
5: I could sell shoes again.
8: Just doesn't make a lot of sense.
1: When you talk it
5: through. And that's kind of the thing that I get with him somewhat is, you know, I can't tell if he just wants to turn them all into demons or if he actually just wants to kill them all off.
6: I'm thinking from the beginning part that they want to turn them into demons, but then from the ones that turn into kind of the fleshy skeletons, I'm not really sure because they don't look like they're going to be doing too much (laughs) after that. No, they just kind of look
0: surprised.
5: (laughs) <laughs> Very surprised yeah. to have been turned like into these. Permanently surprised. Yeah. 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 Soix. Yeah. yeah. And then, I mean, just uh, the the cameo in the band, and I think he might have one line is uh, Carmine Appice, who's a, d- a drummer, and uh, probably best known to he was in Vanilla Fudge and Cactus, and he was with Ozzy, and this was probably right around the time he was with Ozzy. And um, it's just uh, it, he just looking at him made me bust out laughing. I just I couldn't help it.
0: You know, he also uh, co-wrote "Do You Think I'm Sexy," the Rod Stewart disco hit, and uh, yeah, he was actually the uh, soundtrack coordinator. And uh, Lizzie Borden does most of the songs, but uh, yeah, he took it seriously. I uh, I think he did a good job, and it's weird because the rest of the band. You begin with Damien, who he looks like a schmuckier version of uh, Adam Curry from MTV, <laughs> to the point that it's like they it really looks like they were like, we need an Adam Curry type. No, we need an exact Adam Curry type. And uh, so they get him, and then you know it's these kind of party store version of uh, heavy metal rockers, and then there's like big burly Carmen Apache in the middle of all this, just pounding him out pounding on the skins with his mustache. Another great, great porno mustache in the film.
5: I wrote down that the town should be called Mulletville because there are so <laughs> many of them in here, yeah. and then also. Yes, Mullen Basin. Yeah. And then also the feathered hair, especially the teacher's ex-girlfriend. Yeah. I'm yes. like, wasn't this gal on, I don't know, Knott's Landing, Dynasty, or Falcon Crest? <laughs> she is almost Linda Evans.
6: The L- little trivia note about the guy that played Damien, Sal Viviano, fellow Michigander, born in Gross Point.
5: You know, you can't win them all. You know, as I said, you know Iggy Pop balances out Ted Nugent. It's just the way of being a Michigander.
6: True. And we did have Alice Cooper in a uh,
0: heavy metal movie, if memory serves correct. Oh, Alice Cooper's been in like a dozen heavy metal movies that are in the book, and I interviewed him for the book, and that is actually the opening chapter, is my talking with Alice Cooper about his movies. Yeah, I didn't mind the music that much, though
6: I was, I was concerned at one point because the songs sound fairly different. It doesn't sound like it's the same band all the time throughout, and I was just like... Is that good or bad? You know, is this kind of a statement about metal that it's kind of interchangeable? <laughs> but then it seemed like it seemed like most of the songs seemed to be done by the same group when I was looking at the credits. Now, was this one of these like kind of stunt groups, or what, what was that like?
0: Well, Carmine actually put together a band uh, to do some of the songs, but uh, Lizzie Borden was an independent operating, uh, semi-successful hair metal band of that era. And they uh, contributed most of the songs. They sing, for example, for example rock, and rock Invasion, with six A's in the title. Invasion! I love the, the opening song, the uh,
6: I Am For Real song oh, that yeah. Damien sings, because that really just kind of tells you what Damien is all about. <laughs> real, yeah. He's very for real. He's yeah. keeping yes. it real. But yeah, I didn't mind the the music at all, which I was appreciative too. because I guess back in the day, had I seen this in 88, I probably would have been groaning because it was kind of hair metal. Or sorry, it was hair metal. But now I kind of have like a little bit of a soft spot in my heart. Now I can listen to like Poison still not Motley Crue, oh, but I can listen to Some Poison and, and enjoy some of the songs, if only for
5: like the Kitsch value. That's all I can enjoy them on is the Kitsch value level. I can't enjoy them at all because <laughs> <laughs> I grew up with this stuff. And it was like a battle between this and when um, the Seattle bands came out and how... All that kind of killed hair metal dead, and I was more than happy to watch it go away.
6: Yeah, I remember like 1988 hanging out over at Andy Feudner's house, watching MTV for hours and hours, and just all the shit that was on. And so much of it was like when Appetite for Destruction first came out, and you've got GNR and Bon Jovi and Rat and all these guys just competing for airtime. And it was just like, shoot me now. Why... (laughs) But the only good thing was that you had, like, yo, MTV raps would show up, and then it's like, okay, finally, something different. And that was the thing, was there was nothing different. Everything just seemed to be cut from the same cloth. And now I can... Like I said, I can kind of go back to some of those and enjoy them. A lot of them, I'm enjoying them by making fun of them still all these years later. But there is that kind of nostalgia thing for me.
5: I was never a fan of pop metal, but I always liked, which ran at the same time under it, like thrash stuff. So it was like Metallica and Anthrax and Slayer and and all of that stuff. That I liked. But I didn't like the guys with the hairspray and the makeup and trying to rip off the New York dolls and put it into, I guess, a a poppy context and all their videos, like I said, with girls uh, laying on the Lamborghini hood and and stuff like that, it just didn't do anything for me.
6: I don't know what changed, but at some point... Metallica kind of got adopted by the locals around here and like especially the the football team, they'd be like, I listen to Metallica before I pump up before a game and it was just like all indie cred that Metallica had just went right down the toilet. It was just like <laughs> okay, you guys are really into this, huh? Yeah, fuck yeah, Enter Sandman. Woo! You know, it's like, oh, <laughs> Okay, yeah. Have you ever heard this Master Puppet stuff, Ride The lighting? What? Understand, man. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty bad. Yeah. Maybe they listened to one. That was probably about it. That was where the crossover happened, maybe. But yeah, that was bad. But anyway, back to our film. Really, not a whole lot of stuff happens in this movie, even though, to your point, Mike, it moves quickly. There's not a lot of fat on it, but there are a lot of times where it feels like nothing is happening, <laughs> even though we're getting quite a few scenes of stuff. It's mostly the, the teens kind of, you know, the, I, I have to say my favorite part of the film is...
7: I uh, was sorry to hear about your father, Janie. What did he die of? Heart attack. Mother found him
2: dead in the den this morning, about 3 a.m. And she got home from Bridge Club. She
7: felt terrible. Well, I can imagine. She lost. Now, now, Janie, it's only natural that we try to suppress our grief when a parent dies. But unless we allow that grief process a chance to run its normal course, it can come back in destructive ways later on in life. You're far better off getting everything out in the open now, as painful as that may be.
0: I guess you're right. What do you suggest?
7: I suggest, well, uh, you could... uh, There's the... you let your true feelings, your true feelings, just let them come to the surface. And don't, uh, don't be afraid. Don't, uh, don't try to suppress anything. Now, uh, now how did your father's death make you feel? Can you describe it?
2: It Makes me feel like screaming. I'd like to open a window and scream at the top of my lungs. May I? Uh,
7: yes. Uh, that's, a, that's a very good constructive suggestion, Janie, and it's, a, and it's a good start. Let's let you scream. You know, I think it might do you a lot of good. <sighs> you know, I often thought of using screaming in my therapy, in my work.
6: There's also the great like shot of the monster face as she's pushing the guy out the window. And that, to me, was like, okay, that scene really worked. And there are a few of those moments in here that enough to keep me going as I was watching this.
0: Yeah, what's effective in it is really effective. And like I said, the amazing thing to me about it is that it is a real movie. And though a lot doesn't happen, it's very efficient. It has a basic premise and and then, yeah, enough – weird moments like that and that's really pretty i'm not going to say authentic but it's true to you know the idea of a horror film i guess that scene and it works um the way the you know big pussy getting eaten by the speaker monster works in a different way (laughs) i bet you that speaker
6: never sounded the same after that (laughs) there's something wrong with this woofer (laughs) i don't know what it is dad where are you i don't
7: know i don't really know if
6: i need all that bass Oh, I think you need all that bass. I mean, if you want a system to handle what you want, yeah, you need the bass. This is high-fi, okay? High fidelity. You know what that means? That means this is the highest quality fidelity. High-fi. Those are two very important things to have in the stereo system.
5: The thing that's interesting about the movie is looking at it in context of the Satanic Panic of the 80s. All right. Now, we look at it now, and you can go on YouTube and pull up all these old videos, of you know, news broadcast, or Tipper Gore, or whoever, talking about the scourge of rock music. And it's just fascinating to watch this against that, because in a lot of ways, it almost seems like a satire. It almost seems like everything that the PMRC parents, the people that gave you those lovely parental advisory stickers on the records, so you knew which records to buy, would absolutely be afraid of. And... That's part of another part of the charm of the film I think is that it seems like they were smart enough to go, yeah here's all the stuff that they're worried about, so let's kind of put all that together in a in a film and then give them Canadian accents
0: to me it's in keeping with the Twilight Zone uh, tradition, which is that the paranoid guy is right he's always right like the worst thing you know the famous uh, Twilight Zone the monsters would do on Maple Street where the neighbors turn against each other when rumor of an alien invasion takes flight in this suburban neighborhood then at the end it's revealed yes the aliens are watching them and they're going to invade so i thought this was that was kind of this uh similar reaction to the satanic panic stuff it was like yeah it's true it's real here it is and
6: that evil is not vanquished i thought was a nice little touch at the end too which again kind of threw me because i <laughs> that opening where i'm just like okay what's what's going on and then we go to you know the mill basin stuff and i was like okay is was that a flashback is that what's happening coming up because it was just so out of context and everything we go through the entire film. We get this big fight between good and evil at the end. You know, evil is what I think is, is vanquished. And then it's like, what, six months later kind of thing. And there's a news report about how this band, Black Roses, is going to be playing again. And they have a picture of Damien on the TV screen. It's just like, <laughs> oh, there's your Twilight Zone-ish kind of right, ending. Where right. It's like, oh, no, evil is not vanquished. And I'm like... So what about that stuff at the beginning again? (laughs) I was just so – I felt so flummoxed by this movie at times. But at the same time, enjoyable and definitely one where if I were to have a a party, I would not hesitate to put Black Roses on in a heartbeat. And I have to say, there's a good boob
0: count in this movie too. Yeah, I think the total number is four, but they're prominent well oh, yeah. and and, uh, you know, properly displayed. I have not played Strip
6: Gin Rummy ever before, but I would <laughs> like to know. learn. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> would definitely like to
5: learn. You you play Strip Contract Bridge, right? You and the misses. <laughs> it's
6: really kind of bad when we go on tournament.
5: Yes, exactly. Yeah, I can't get a hold yeah. of you during that. Forget it. over yeah no
6: mike how does this kind of fit in with um you know we we've talked a little bit about john fasano's films and you know the the trilogy as it were of these heavy metal movies that he made but where does this kind of fit in with this whole pmrc heavy metal kind of thing that was happening at the time and and this whole general heavy metal movies as a as a uh, subgenre
0: Well, I mean, Black Roses is probably, I mean, I dare say it is the purest example of a heavy metal movie because, I mean, it's just it's inseparable from the music, from the moment, from the, you know, 1988 is probably pop culture, you know, the dominant moment for heavy metal and pop culture because of the MTV stuff and because of the satanic panic and the... Geraldo Rivera special, which was that Halloween, where uh, oh, he God. did the uh, Satan is Coming, with uh, special guests King Diamond and Ozzy Osbourne. So, I mean, it's 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 just there, because it's about heavy metal music. It contains heavy metal music. Uh, you have Carmine Apice, who is a great heavy metal musician that's in it. Everything is there. Like I said, it may be the purest example in the book of what a heavy metal movie is. Now, the larger definition for the book, because it is – you know, I set out to write 666 reviews of the most metal movies, and we had, we ended up with like 1,300 or something. And uh, holy cow! Yes, it's been every day for three and a half years. So oh. the final count in the book is like 900. So we have 400 for volume two in the can. So it's basically you know any movie with metal music, about metal music, concert films, documentaries, but then. Stuff that conveys or has inspired specific metal songs. Iron Maiden has fifty songs based on movies. Or just aesthetics, like the metal mindset and look, and basically, you know, van art of the nineteen seventies. So that would be, you know, Conan the Barbarian and all those ripoffs, Mad Max and all those ripoffs. Just kinda anything that has it been embraced by heavy metal or inspired heavy metal. Did you say that Iron Maiden has
6: fifty songs based on movies? Yeah.
0: From the first album onward, yeah, from Phantom of the Opera to uh, The Wicker Man, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, which is a stark British uh, uh, boarding school drama. (laughs) They have a very stark
5: British song about that.
6: Wow, I never would have thought that, but that is crazy. Because when I think of them, I think of like "Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner." Right, there's
5: a lot of classic literature in there. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about something like "The Trooper," you know, Alfred Lord Tennyson's "The Charge right. of Light Brigade," uh, Coleridge, you know, "Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner," right. and things like that. I mean, they were one of the few bands that I could think of that actually were literate and would go read poetry from the right. 17, 1800s.
0: But then, you know, the video for the uh, "The Trooper." uses footage from the silent film version of *Charge of the Light Brigade. So even then, it's tied up cinematically, always.
6: Well, I always thought the nice thing with going back to Metallica was this whole idea of you know, the one video using right. Johnny Got His Gun, you know, or Johnny Get Your Gun. So it was nice to see that kind of tie-in, and I imagine it took so much for people to figure out what movie that was from way right. back then, you know, it was like before the internet. So right. unless you heard a rumor of what it was, you know, cause that wasn't this popular film that people were just rushing out to rent at the video store. But it was nice that this film got a little bit of play because of that video. And I, it's interesting to go back and watch the movie now and try not to think of one right. as you're watching yeah. him banging his head, doing the Morse code and everything. Right. It's like, Oh yeah. So and even hearing the lyrics, you know, hearing the dialogue from the movie as you're listening to the song right. it's kind of it's in- impossible to separate those two.
0: I had that experience last night. I was driving in the car and Layla came on and to me it's just that end montage of Goodfellas. I mean I just I see Joe Pesci getting shot as soon as I hear the piano start up and blood pumping out of his head and everything so i always think of the guy in the garbage can
6: <laughs> and just kind of floating through yeah. and as that piano part is playing i'm always thinking of that line about carmine being frozen so solid it took three days to <laughs> the <video> autopsy. the <laughs> that's another one that is you know but scorsese is great for that kind yeah. of stuff yeah Is there anything else we need to talk about, Black Roses?
0: Uh, just that I I liked at the end with the teacher, just one other point that I always thought was funny, is that he's putting, like, gasoline and, like, road flares all over the stage, and nobody notices. I mean, he's doing, like, a full wily Coyote setup, in plain view of the, you know, sock hop kids, who are mesmerized.
6: Oh, yeah, they have to be really into that. I mean, to not notice him, to not smell the gasoline... (laughs) (laughs) either that or they think it's like the best pyrotechnic show
5: ever it is definitely of its time and if you are um if, if you want to watch something for kitsch value this is one of those that i think for kitsch value is really really fun to watch if you like that era of music and that kind of stuff you might like it even more yeah the music was kind of annoying to me but it, it uh, like I said it has this kind of like I don't know for some reason it has like this after school special kind of vibe for me for some reason I just kept expecting um, that there would be some important moral lesson that we would all be imparted with you know when it comes uh, to the very end you know not to cheat on uh, tests or something
6: Rob as you're watching this at like 2 in the morning having insomnia and checking this out did it keep your interest all the way through?
5: Yeah it kept my interest um, just because I had no idea what was going to happen next um i was sort of mesmerized like the kids at the end and i was just sort of going all right uh, where's this thing going because uh, I, I know where i would take it but as you said there are certain aspects of it that make us realize that in the end evil wins because good is dumb
6: and rob did you have dreams of damien
5: afterwards no as a matter of fact i didn't i didn't have any dreams of any uh, anything in this uh, the only thing i made sure of is that uh, If I have a beer, I ain't pouring it in a glass when I'm at home. So there you go. Okay, we're going to take a break and play an interview with the director of Black Roses, John Fasano, after these important messages.
2: You love midnight movies, don't you? (laughs) But can you handle midnight movies 24 hours a day? Your death
1: will be indescribable.
2: Find out on Black Flag TV. The first viral television on the web. Black Flag TV is entirely dedicated to haunting horror, science fiction, and occult movies. Broadcasting live, 24 hours a day, obscure independent movies, and classic horror. Make Black Flag TV your sanctuary for the horror genre. They're
7: coming to get you, Barbara.
2: Visit us now, Black Flag.
4: Everyone wants to spice things up in the bedroom. Here's an offer you won't want to miss. Listeners of the Projection Booth podcast can enjoy 50% off just about any one item at adamandeve.com. When you use the promotion code BOOTH, you also get free shipping and three free adult DVDs. Once again, that promotional code is BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H. Visit AdamandEve.com today.
2: All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and
1: Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh? us to
5: church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show?
1: Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs>
5: uh, is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the
6: guy that f- burns the coattails and then pisses on them.
5: You review all <laughs> these exploitation, horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've... Heard you say that before uh yeah
1: i've been saying that for a while
5: really i have been saying that for
1: a while also i'm high on smack
5: well it's definitely working for you guys <laughs> people are coming out in droves to support you on itunes we just the other day got a, a, a one star review on itunes well that is one <laughs>
1: that is one star too many <laughs> let me tell you
6: the worst piece of shit i've ever heard
5: this has been great guys
6: thanks scott ah oh, that
5: was good oh he's got you crying over there uh, i'm good for the rest of the year nice that was too much <laughs>
6: John Fasano, you've got credits uh, just about everywhere across the board. Editing, second unit director, camera and electrical department. What was your first love? How did you kind of get into Hollywood?
8: When I was six years old, John Cassavetes made a movie called Husbands with Ben Gazzara and Peter Falk. and It was about four guys that were friends, and one of them died, and they started start the movie with that guy's funeral. Now, John Cassavetes went to high school with my father and with his friend and sat next to him. And they shot that first scene in the town I grew up in on Long Island. And my father took us down to the set. I'd never been on a set before. There's trucks and people and actors. And, you know, they said, bring a cup of coffee to Mr. Cazara. And my father had been a big football player. So they were throwing a football around, you know, Cassavetes and those guys and Falk. And I just looked around and I said, I mean, six years old, And I said, this is what I want to do. And I never wanted to do anything else. So if I was in, you know, went home, you know, I, I had seen The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad or Jason the Argonauts, so I knew there was animation, right? And I said, I'm going to be Ray Harryhausen. I'm going to make my own, you know, monster movies. And I started making them in my backyard with clay monsters. And, you know, like if I was in junior high school and I had to do a report, I'd make a film. You know, if I was in high school and I had to do a project, I'd make a film. So I never looked back on that. And of course, I went to college and majored in law. <laughs> but uh, when I was in college, you know, I acted in plays with Wesley Snipes and Thing Rames, and these guys we were all in the same college with me, Stanley Tucci, Stephen Weber. So we all went to college together at the University of New York at Purchase. And Nick Gomez, the great, you know, director, used to direct Dexter when it was on. And uh, so I was always acting and keeping my hand in it and waiting for the time when I could get into the film business and I was very very lucky that when I graduated from college it was like the the death throes of the Grindouts movie because in New York there were these pornographers who had all the equipment to make a movie but didn't pay to make a movie in on film on 35 millimeter film to make a pornographic movie because you wouldn't get your money back. Guys were shooting them on video for $10,000. And so the idea of spending, you know, like $250,000 to shoot a porno up against the guy that was spending ten, I mean, man, you were just asked. So all those guys started making movies, horror movies, because they figured a horror movie was like a porn, you know, every six minutes somebody had to die and... You know, and I just happened to be out of college and in New York when the first guy said, you know, can you help us with this? Uh, Do you know anyone that can help us with this script? Because what I was doing is I was doing the movie posters because I could draw and paint. I was doing the movie posters and the ad campaigns for these grindhouse movies like Tenement and uh, The Oracle, right? And so the people making those movies said, well, we have a script, but the the distributor says the script isn't any good. And I said, well, I can write a script. I rewrote Blood Sisters, and then I was in it. That was with Roberta Finley, who had done, her husband had done the Snuff movie, you know. And then Jack Rothman, who was another producer, he heard what I did for them, and he said, Will you write and direct a whole movie for me about zombies. I want to do a zombie movie, so I did Zombie Nightmare for him. And then, you know, Shapiro, uh, Lenny Shapiro came out from uh, California and he said to uh, these guys, he said, I want to make a movie for $100,000. I'll put up 50, you put up 50, and we'll split the net 50-50. And the guys from real time said, no, no, we'll split the gross 50-50. And they said, no, the net. So they said, screw that. So I called them up in their hotel room because I had been in there doing like an ad campaign because I figured well I was gonna you know write it, make the monsters in my basement, you know storyboard it all out, and that was Rock and Roll Nightmare. So they gave me fifty thousand dollars and I shot the whole thing for fifty three thousand. Like I said, you give me fifty and I'll put up fifty, but I figured I'll just make it for their fifty. So I so I made it for their fifty, and then in post I needed another three thousand dollars. So Rock and Roll Nightmare cost fifty three thousand dollars. And they made like $500,000 in sales on it. And then they came back and they said, we're going to give you $400,000. And that was Black Roses. Now, this is all, you know, I'm living in New York and driving up to Toronto to make these movies and the producers are in L.A. And uh, Black Roses, I was like, $500,000 $400,000. I thought they were giving me like a, the budget of the new Godzilla movie. You know, I was like, I could have scenes. You know, I could have scenes in and I could rent restaurants and not just have to build them in the corner of the set. So Black Roses was, uh, I consider, like, my first legitimate movie that you can watch and go, like, oh, it's not just a piece of crap. So,
6: so with Zombie Nightmare, Rock and Roll Nightmare, Black Roses, kind of like a, like a heavy metal trilogy, were you big into metal back in the day?
8: You know how many times I've been asked this question? Here's the deal. I liked ACDC when I was in college, right? I liked Angus and ACDC, I really didn't have any... You know, I grew up on Long Island, so we liked Billy Joel and we liked Bruce Springsteen. And the only metal that we heard really was uh, ACDC. But what happened was everyone was against metal at that time. And uh, when we did Zombie Nightmare, we didn't have any intention of having any sort of metal influence until John Thor came in halfway right through the movie to replace the zombie and then he said, oh, I can get, you know, Ace of Spades for the title. And, like, you know, he, he went and he got us connections to these heavy metal groups. And then when we, you know, and that led into Black Roses, which is about a heavy metal band that's from hell. Because, you know, back then, Al Gore's wife, Tipper Gore, people forget it was like Al Gore that was our vice president, you know, under Clinton. His wife and him were trying to shut down rock music. They were, they are the ones that said that heavy metal was the music of the devil, and if kids listened to it, they'd commit suicide. Some kids had committed suicide while listening to some crappy heavy metal. So, it's like, that was on everybody's mind at the time. So that's, you know, so Zombie Nightmare had the heavy metal. Rock and Roll Nightmare had Thor in it. And his music, which was metal, I don't know how heavy it was. And then we and then into Black Roses, which I wanted Thor to be the star of, by the way, at the time. But he had done two movies with me and wanted to go do his own. And, you know, that was the one where the heavy metal was the music of the devil. So it just turned out that Elliot Solomon, that worked for Shapiro, had a great relationship, I think, with Carmine Peace. So we got Carmine's friends involved in Black Roses, and he had gotten us hooked up with and Thor had gotten us hooked up with King Cobra and those guys. So it just turned out that at the time, we got heavy metal music into our horror movies, You know, for the first two of them, eventually making Black Roses, which is, I consider, like, a heavy metal horror movie, which is beloved now but was not in the day, let me tell you.
6: You can definitely see the increase in budget as you're going along, I mean, especially between Rock and Roll Nightmare Uh, and Black Roses.
8: It's between $50,000 and $400,000. There's 20 minutes of Black Roses that you've never seen. You know, Matthew Morehouse on dates with his girlfriend and You know, uh, people walking down the street and, you know, that we shot because we had money. Scenes in the hallway with Matt Morehouse and Julie. Julie, you're changing. Uh, And then when we were done with the whole movie, um, you know, uh, Jim Glickenhouse, who directed The Exterminator and Shakedown with Peter Weller, said, look, you know, lose like 10 minutes in this movie, and I was like, I, it's, every frame is precious, man, every frame is perfection, and he said, look, you can cut 10 minutes out, or I'll cut 10 minutes out, and I'll just cut out what I want, so I went in there, you know, because you, when you're editing a movie, you're like, oh, that's that shot, it's not a really good shot, but I remember how long it took to, to, to get it, you know, so I went in there, and he taught me a great lesson, because whether it's a script or a movie, now, or a drawing, I go in, I never am so in love with it that I won't cut all of it, if I have to. And I went in, and I cut like 25 minutes out of Black Roses, not 10 minutes, and then he was so happy that he gave me the money to shoot Julie filling up her tits in, in front of the fire, uh, you know, like a, 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 the paint can catching on fire, uh, Vinnie Pastore being eaten by the thing from the speaker. None of that was in the original shooting, uh, and then we got to go to the Mamaronek Public Library where they had a stage and the opening where you see that Damien and his band are demons. We shot that there in in, in New York in Mimarinic, uh Public Library. So we got to add like five or six monster scenes and sexy scenes because he I took his advice and cut the other stuff out of the movie. Just cut you know dialogue scenes out. And, you know, Jim was a great producer because he was also a director. So, you know, and now he's like a gazillionaire. He owns a stock brokerage company and a Ferrari race team. How's that? He had Ferrari make a car that only fits him and his son, like custom, like not a Ferrari they make for you with like a $500,000 car. Anyway, but it cost more than Black Roses. Uh, But Black Roses was, was a great experience for me because, we really tried to shoot it as a legitimate movie you know we had extras we had you know we got to understand that rock and roll nightmare zombie nightmare was the total fuck up because when we were done shooting it and we shot a decent movie and i'll just say that not out of like ego we shot a decent movie but what happened was it was edited really badly like if adam west was looking at like adam west would look at his script till he understood the line then he would look up and say the line because we would give him pages at the last minute right so, the editors would leave in him looking at the script. He, is, he assumed they cut away from him until he started talking. And there were guys in that movie that die and come back. And I finally got a call from the editors, who were great guys that be, went on to become like big Canadian DP and uh, director. And I was like, they said, Do you have a copy of the script? Because we don't know what order these scenes go in. And they were editing the movie without the script. And so when you – and, and there, and, and uh, you know, I was the zombie that kills Adam West at the end because the actor didn't get picked up at the airport, Superstar Billy Graham. And what happened was there were all these great shots of me coming out of the ground and attacking him. Well, they used the actual camera negative to make the trailer because they didn't know that you use a copy of it. So then when they went to edit the movie together, those scenes were gone. The negative had been cut off the roll and was gone. So, in the movie, a lot of the shots are the second or third quality shots. So, uh, Zombie Nightmare was like a fuck-up from the beginning. But it was fun. We shot in Montreal and everything. And Rock and Roll Nightmare was a fuck-up because we had a 10-day shoot. And I'm telling you, dude, I shot the movie on VHS in my house in New York. before. Like, I storyboarded the entire movie. And then we shot it with our family. Every shot we were going to take in the movie... We get up there, and seven days into the shoot, 10-day shoot, the DP says, oh, my spiritual mentor died. Uh, I've got to go sit on a mountain with his other followers. And he just left with three days left of the movie. So that's why, if, I don't know if you've seen Rock and Roll Nightmare recently, but that's why there's a scene of a van driving around for like nine minutes, because we didn't shoot the last three days of the movie. And on and and top of that, we did a whole you know, sequence of these little monsters running around the house and at the end of it, same DP realized he had not threaded the film through the camera and didn't tell us. I think he made a weird look on his face. And the next day, the day I was came in. and was like, "Where's the shot of that little guy running under the table, running here? All gone, all of it gone." So, Rock and Roll Nightmare. If it wasn't for the ending, where Thor puts on a metal jockstrap and fights Satan, which has been copied now in many other movies, if it wasn't for that, that movie is like unwatchable. So that all gets me up to Black Roses. Which we had fire, we had stuntmen, we had. I even let the DP who had fucked up Rock and Roll Nightmare. He was. I let him shoot the first half of the movie till I realized that he was fucking up Black Roses, and so we fired him. But it was his car, Matt Morehouse, was driving in the movie. It was his uh, cool Toyota Celica Supra, whatever. But he let us. You know, he could have been a dick and said you can't use my car, but he let us use his car and his crane, and he had his own crane and everything. And then the guy that came in and finished Black Roses also shot the jitters for me and other movies later, Paul mitchnick he did a great job. We watched Black Roses in the theater like a DVD projected up in Portland like a couple of months ago, and it looked amazing. It looked, totally looked like, I mean, like, this is we, totally looked like a real movie. In other words... Rock and Roll Nightmare looks like a cheap movie, but Black Roses on the screen looked like a real movie, so it was quite a thrill to see it. A hundred people showed up to see Black Roses. Tell me about Cindy Sorrell. My ex-wife, Cindy Sorrell, she decided that Sorrell sounded Jewish uh, and that she'd have more success in the film business if people thought she was Jewish. But her name is C-I-R-I-L-E, and she's the mother of Jesse D'Angelo, who is the wolf boy in rock and roll nightmare. And he's the kid that throws his toys in the fire in black roses. And we were living together. We weren't married yet. We were living together and she wanted to be a screenwriter and I wanted to be a director. So I said, you know, you write the script and I'll direct it. That was our deal. And her script for that movie was really cool, but it was, it was long and it was literary. I mean, I'll give you a good example you know the, you know, in the opening of the movie when the guys pull into town? I mean, you know, in the bed, when the band pulls into town and you see Johnny's mother wake him up and you see what's-her-name stepfather yell at her, like you'd see those little shots, right, between the titles. Well, each one of those things was a full scene. This is where the time came from, right? The, each one of those things was a full scene. And the, the same thing was said in every one of them, which is basically Black roses is coming, why aren't you letting me see them? And when I realized I only needed this little bit of each scene, then I put it into the title sequence, but I mean we shot like a five minute scene of each one of those scenes uh that there's only a little there's only like one exchange of dialogue in there, and you know it was just it was all good dialogue by Cindy, but it was this it was the same story over and over again well, black Rose is coming why aren 't you letting me see it? You know Black Rose is coming, my friends are going you know. So um, that was just an example of like how we and then she wrote the lyrics for the band and everything like that. And I mean, like she did a really good job on the script.
7: Why
6: were this one and the previous one? Why they, were they shot in Canada? And by the way, in 18 other movies,
8: I've made have been shot in Canada television. Uh, well, here is the deal at the time. They had a thing called these tax shelters, which was an American company could go up to Canada, make a movie and then write it off whether it came out or not. So if you had a a million dollars, you could make three $300,000 movies in Toronto and you get a tax write-off that's not the same anymore. I mean, literally, you could write, in fact, a lot of these movies, they didn't want them to ever come out because if they made a profit, you'd have to pay taxes on it. They literally wanted, there was a whole industry up there of guys who just made these movies and that they would go right on the shelf, Uh, not ours, thank God, you know. Uh, and, uh, and also, when we went to do Zombie Nightmare, if you had the American dollar, it was worth like a dollar forty Canadian. So when you went up and took everybody out to dinner, it co- everything cost 40% less than it would have done if we shot in America. So it, it cost less to shoot there because of the exchange rate, and they had this write-off, this tax write-off. Now the exchange rate's the same, so there's no benefit to that. What they're doing now is, like, if you shoot in Winnipeg, every crew member you hire, they give you back half the money. So if you hire a grip for $200, they give you back $100. So that's why people are still going to Canada, even though the exchange rate's pretty even. They're still giving us an incentive. It's like why people go, why did they shoot The Walking Dead in Atlanta instead of L.A., where everybody could sleep in their home, and go just drive to work in the morning is because in Atlanta... At the, end of the, you know, at the end of the season, they'll give you back 30% of the money you spent in Georgia. So that's why people are going to Louisiana, Atlanta, New Mexico. It's for the, it's for the money back.
6: Tell me about the casting of Black Roses. How did you come about with the, the folks that are in it?
8: We had two you know, casting sessions, obviously. We had one that was up in Canada and one that was in New York, where we got Sal and we got uh, John Martin, who was the Marlboro man. He was on the soap opera. And Sal was on a soap opera at the time and had been on Broadway. There was a rule. He could only have so many Americans. And, you know, like Frank Dietz, who plays Johnny in the movie, uh, was my friend since I was eight. So, you know, he's in all my movies. You know, he's in The Jitters. He's in Rock and Roll Nightmare. He's in Zombie Nightmare. So that was just like, you're playing that part. And Tony, that, uh, that uh, you know, was like the tough kid in the Guinea T-shirt, Well, he sculpted the mask I wore in Zombie Nightmare and he sculpted like that thing that comes out of the speaker and he sculpted most of the Julie Monster and so, you know, he was just a great, crazy character so I cast him and all of the women were cast up out of Canada, all the, all the girl parts. You know, we had a regular casting director in Canada and in fact, my sister who then became a huge, you know, my sister Felicia, my little sister who was a hairstylist on those movies uh, she's now one of the top casting directors in the world. She does, She's doing um, Ride Along 2. She did Barbershop 1 and 2, Bad Santa. She does Californication, House of Lies. She just did Constantine, you know, Constantine that NBC just picked up. Her beginning of casting was I would send her off to Canada and I'd say, Winnow, you know, she'd go up there with Cindy Sorel, and I, they would see, you know, because I'd be back like tuning up the script and ma- you know making whatever last deals. So they would go up and they would winnow down the actress to the point where I could see could see them. And uh, you know, Carmine Piece, you know, who else is going to play the drums in Black Roses? But but the thing is that I, you know, I'll tell you two casting stories which you may have, may or may have not have heard. I really wanted for um, the teacher. I really wanted Gede Watanabe that was the little Japanese guy in Pretty in Pink and in that movie, used, uh, in that movie uh, Gung-Ho with, with Michael Keaton because I thought no one's ever going to offer this guy to be the romantic, heroic lead in a movie. He's a little Japanese guy. He's always going to play the guy that pops out of the closet in UHF and says, you know, like He's always going to be that guy and his agent just totally shut me down and I wanted Thor to play Damien. Because that would have been like the triumvirate. Thor would have been in, you know, Rock and Roll Nightmare, Zombie Nightmare, and Black Roses. And at the time, he was married to this woman that was like, John, you're better than John. You know, you you should be the one that makes these movies. And he was like, my wife thinks we should make our own movies. And that was the end of that, you know, because I absolutely would have loved him to play. Think about the movie, would have been a whole different texture, like... Yeah, man. Hey, I'm Damien. You know, would have been would have been great. And you know, we didn't talk to each other for like 15 years, and then recently got to be friends again. And I used him in a couple of my TV movies. And he's coming down next two weeks from now to play, release his new album in L.A. And then he's going to come up to Portland in the end of July. We're going to show Rock and Roll Nightmare. We showed Black Roses there. I said like a couple of months ago. We're going to show Rock and Roll Nightmare at the Hollywood Theater in Portland, and Thor's going to come up and show a video of his band, or he'll play, and we'll sign autographs and answer questions afterwards. So that'll be fun. He's pretty much almost retired now, so uh, to get him to do this is a big deal. Does he still blow up the hot water bottle? Yeah. Well, it's, it's so strange because it's like, I don't think he does it. I mean, as my daughter says, now he looks like Guy Fieri from Diners, drive and Dives. You know, he's big, and we're, he and I are both much bigger than when we made those movies, because we got old and got heavy. Uh, but um, he, you know he, uh, he does this act where he wears the predator mask and puts the mic underneath it and sings, and he wears you know, all these different masks on stage, and he wears this green rubber arm or this uh, you know this not green, this gray rubber armor. And it really is like a one-man, you know, G-war show, you know, whatever the hell you pronounce that. He used to blow up the hot water bottle, and he used to hold a cinder block on his chest and let people break it with a sledgehammer. And if you look at the pictures from Rock and Roll Nightmare, you can see that his ribs on one side are totally fucked up because a guy just swung the hammer and hit him in the ribs and missed the cinder block entirely. One time, just broke all his ribs on one side. You know, when, when, uh, when my wife and I were living in New York at the time, and I was making Zombie Nightmare, and I knew that her, she had a friend whose husband was a guy named Thor, and I'd seen pictures of him and heard he was Mr. K When we were shooting Zombie Nightmare, and we had to get rid of the guy that was playing the zombie after half the shoot, I called John up and I said, I need a bodybuilder who's Canadian. He's like, oh, I'm Canadian. I had no idea. And he came up and did that movie and we had such a great time. How did Vincent
6: Pastore get involved? Vincent
8: Pastore had not done a movie yet. We were, when, when Glickenhaus said, shoot some extra monster scenes, Here's another $50,000 or $40,000, whatever it was. We came, I came up with the scenes, the speaker scene, and they needed a guy to play Tony's dad who looked like he could be Tony's dad. And we got headshots the way it used to be is that people would send you their picture then we would bring him in and read them and he was great so he got the part and that was like his first part in a movie before he became the big pussy on sopranos and you know it's like some sometimes people like Tia Carrere's her like her second movie is Zombie Nightmare and when you mentioned it to her in person in the past she'd be like oh don't remind me about that terrible movie and but like Vincent D'Astori you see him somewhere and you go hey Black Rose he's like that was my first movie like some people are proud of what they did. Some people are, you know, embarrassed. So I'm proud of everything I did because you know what? When, you know, I remember when Rock and Roll Nightmare came out and they had a review of it in Variety and they said we used sock puppets for the the little Gibson guys, although they were actually sculpted in foam and had a little fake eye and then they were not sock puppets. They looked like sock puppets, but they were actually sculpted and everything. And my friend, a friend of mine called me up and he's like, oh, there's a bad review of a movie of your movie in Variety today. And I said, is there a bad review of your movie you directed in Variety today? It's like, you know, if if I had never made another movie, I could, I would not have been the guy who sits there and says, I wanted to direct movies, but I never could, you know.
6: Well, it seems like each of these films was kind of a, a learning experience for you to, to then go on to, like, the jitters. And then you, you even uh, wrote another 48 hours, right? Yeah,
8: and Alien 3 and... Tombstone and Universal Soldier 2 and Darkness Fall. I mean, I, you know, the films, the films I've written in L.A. or, uh, like, a lot of them were uncredited, like like on Judge Dredd where there were 12 writers and they didn't have a script good enough to make into the movie. And then I came in and wrote the draft that they greenlit. The movies that I, in the day that I wrote, made over a billion dollars, you know, total. So uh, that's a big cry like, when I first came to L.A., I brought a print, a 35-millimeter print of Black Roses to show people. And I quickly learned that a $500,000 movie, $500,000 is what Joel Silver, you know, on Die Hard, they spent on lunch. You know, so they don't comprehend when you say, I made this whole movie for $500,000. I mean, now they're making these movies for $5,000 they get released. You know, with because there's video, but back then when you said that, they were like, what do you mean? They didn't have any point of reference to them. And Black Roses was on the USA channel, which was a big deal back then, like that it was on TV, because a lot you know, like Rock and Roll Nightmare was never on TV. Zombie Nightmare was on Mystery Science Theater 3000, that's a thrill. You know, back then, you know, look, every movie that you make is a miracle, right? Like, just think about, like, go on IMDb sometime and look me up if you're listening, because it'll help my rating. Uh, but go on IMDb and, like, like, think of a movie you saw, like some low-budget horror movie, and then go look and see how many movies that guy who directed it or wrote it made. And sometimes that's their only movie, you know. And so when I did this, I didn't know if I was ever going to do another movie. You know, when, when, when uh, that guy walked out of uh, Rock and Roll Nightmare with seven days left, I was like, I may not finish this movie. I've got to finish this movie. It's my first solo Movie. If I can't finish it, I may never do another one. So there's a lot of pressure involved with making movies. There's a lot less pressure involved when you're making Godzilla for Warner Brothers, because the scenes with Godzilla in it are made by somebody else. Like you know, the scenes that have planes in them are done by somebody. You know, like when you're a director on a huge, huge movie, everything's compartmentalized. But when you are just doing a movie yourself, you got to do everything, man. You got to. To everything and what I love about those like these H D cameras, like these Canon SLRs. Did you see Manborg? I haven't seen that one yet. Oh you gotta see Manborg. I went to the Boston Underground Film Festival a couple of years ago to show Rock and Roll Nightmare at a midnight show. And we saw a man before that they showed Manborg and like the guy made this thing in his garage for like twelve thousand dollars. And it's only forty five minutes long. But, you know, it's like it's it looks like a weird hybrid video game whatever you know that there's people out there doing decent stuff at least stuff with a vision because they don't have any money you know we didn't we didn't have any money to make those movies and so we you know like well we don't have any money so this better be funny we don't have any money so the end of this better be memorable you know that's that's what you had to do back then when you have tons of money you just assume everything's going to work out all right you know I hope that everybody, you know, listening has make, tried to make a horror movie. Make a five-minute horror movie, you know, just get a video camera and make one. Cut it together on iMovie, you know, cut it together on your Mac and, you know, put it on, you know, YouTube or Vimeo or something. That's, that's what can happen. You know, you could actually make a movie good enough to put on DVD now with your friends. When I was growing up, you couldn't do that. We had cameras that didn't have sound, we used to show the movie and stand next to the projector and and do the dialogue because the old Super 8 cameras didn't have sound on them.
6: Which do you prefer? Do you prefer writing or directing? Because you have a lot of uh, in both columns.
8: I prefer directing because it's the most fun. Actually, the most fun is acting. I act just straight acted in a couple of movies like Student Affairs and you know Hannah's Law, where I was just an actor in the movie and not you know like not the director. And that's the most fun of every job. When everyone says, like, you want to be a director, it's like, no, you want to be an actor because they just, you know, you you wait till it's your turn, you do your line, if you fuck it up, they let you do it again, like nobody yells at you. If you're the director and you fuck up, like you're fucking up millions of dollars, you know. Acting is the best job. And the second best job is directing. That's why so many actors and directors go back and forth between the two. But directing is a lot of pressure. You know, you shoot for 12 hours, You come back, you look at the dailies from the day before, right? You don't get to sleep with your wife or the star of the movie because now it's like 2 o'clock in the morning. And you have to be up in three hours and go back to the set. And then the day, the one day a week that you have off, like if you're shooting in Canada, you're shooting six-day weeks, let's say. The one day a week you have off, you've got notes to do. You've got to re-watch the dailies you missed and sleep, so it's a really, now, and nowadays, like a TV movie, which we used to shoot in 20, like Black Roses we shot, with the original shoot in Canada was 21 days. The last TV movie I directed, it was 15 days because now they have digital cameras. Like for 20, we needed 21 days because every 10 minutes of film, we had to stop and I had to run over with a new roll of film and put it in the camera. And you'd get, you'd, everything would stop while that was going on for a few minutes. You know, people would go have a cigarette, they'd have a snack, but now you can just shoot straight through because you can shoot two hours on the videotape. You know, they'll shoot the scene over and over and they don't even, they don't even cut and then restart a lot of these, a lot, like, if they'll have a scene between two people and they're not quite getting it, they'll just have them go over and over and over and over and over again. It's pretty cool, but it does change the whole concept of, you know, the, the pace of it. You got to figure if you see an episode of uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and they shoot that in eight days, and it's 44 minutes. And a two-hour movie on TV is 88 minutes, so you shoot it in 15, 16 days. It's just basically double the schedule of an hour show. You get the quality of, like, an hour show for two hours, unless you're doing Game of Thrones where they spend, like, $10 million on episode.
6: So what's next for you for
8: directing? What's next for me directing? I'm going to direct something this year, either in China... A romantic comedy that my new wife Edie King wrote, which is really an amazing uh, comedy about uh, two people who fall in love during a contest to pick the cartoon character that will represent Asia to tourism, and it's kind of like cosplay in the world of people all dressed up like they're in cosplay. I'm doing a TV series of The Mutant Chronicles, the role-playing game, as a, as the creator, as the writer, and the creator of that. For directing, I want to do this Western that I wrote, which is kind of a prequel to um, Tombstone. Yeah, I mean, if you watch Tombstone, one of the things that always pissed me off when I was on the set is, you know, with the Brothers are standing there, and Doc Holliday walks up, and it's like, Hey, Doc, hey, Wyatt, and I was like, all these guys met somewhere else. We're not even doing a movie about where they met, we're doing a movie about, like, just some adventure they're on, but they all met in Dodge City. So I have a script about that that I, don't, that I don't want to do this year. And, you know, I'm, and I'm looking to move out of California to a state that has a good tax credit so that whoever is making that movie, that it helps them out.
6: Well, I would tell you to come to Michigan, but I think we repealed ours a few years ago.
8: We did. I did Hostel 3 there. And uh, I wrote Hostel Part Three, which I didn't get a credit on, or I didn't ask for a credit on, because I really don't do that kind of movie. But they needed the script; needed work. We shot in Michigan, and then a couple of days in Vegas, because it takes place in Vegas. But they did all the interiors in Michigan. And uh, I don't remember us saving any huge amount of money by doing that, you know, because they, they Michigan at the time, they gave you a really great tax break of like thirty-five percent. But they also wanted you to have a full union crew, and which is more money. You know, you go to Louisiana, you can hire your brother-in-law to be the cameraman. They don't care. They have no, they have a right-to-work state. But you go to um, Michigan, and you have to use, uh, you have to use the uh, the union people. So it ended up costing us more to do that.
6: Thank you so much for your time, Clint. This, this has wasn't been awesome. Too
8: dry and technical. I mean, if, if you want to hear nudie stories about the movie, or...
6: you do have a lot of breasts in the film. Well, you know, the
8: one girl—it's like four different girls playing her breasts because she had like no breasts, and we didn't know that till we got there. So the girl who peels herself up in the front of the mirror isn't her. The girl who takes her shirt off before she turns into the monster—that isn't her. Um, I think the the girl who comes into the Johnny's bedroom that he thinks is her—that's a stripper that we hired. But that girl, um, you know, who now runs like the Calgary Film Festival, um, somehow she got in the head that I didn't like her. But I liked—I mean, I liked her. She did a great job on the movie. And at one point, she was coming down the aisle of the theater where we were filming the Black Roses shows, and I was like putting my hands out to the side, like, "No, move it to the left!" And I hit her right in the—she was coming up behind me, I didn't see her. I, I hit her right in the face and knocked her down. And everybody was like, you punched her in the face. And I was like, no, seriously, that was entirely a mistake. And she never quite believed I didn't do it on purpose, which is sad. because I, I would never hit her. Never hit a woman in any way, but didn't mean to, didn't mean to hit her. Now, John Martin I would have hit. That guy, he, he showed up. He, did, he didn't want to do the movie, Black Roses. And when he showed up at the hotel, like when the actor shows up at the hotel, you go to this room and you say, you want to talk about the script? Tell me what your thoughts are. And he goes, I didn't read this piece of shit. I was hoping my agent would get me out of it. That's what you want to hear the day before the guy's going to shoot. He's like, I'll be fine. I was like, oh, fuck. And then when we got to the end of the movie, we had to fire the guy in the Damien monster suit, who was like one, and had to use a guy that was like 5'6". So the monster is like a foot shorter than Matt Morehouse. And he's on stage. He's like, I got to fight this guy. He's smaller than me. This isn't good. And I was like, just fight him. I mean, like, you know, and that really was a,
3: uh,
8: an ordeal. And like, he's, as he's fighting, he's going, this is going to suck. And I was like, thank you. Thank you so much. So it wasn't all fun. But at the end, it was.
6: Yeah, I was wondering about that because that guy, that, that creature did seem pretty tiny.
8: <laughs> yeah. And then also, you know, like, it was supposed to have another one more layer of color paint on it, like a darker brown and they never got to finish it that's it kind of like the primer on there it's a great monster you know and then when we moved out of new york we left all the molds and everything with a defects guy there who shall remain nameless and then like a year ago i saw the head from the monster from black roses on ebay for like fifteen hundred bucks and i was like oh that was the where did you get that and it was the, being sold by the guy that i left it for safekeeping who Years ago, when I called him and said, where's that stuff? He's like, oh, my mom threw it out. So he was trying, and, I, and, and he was like, if you push me, I'll just, I'll just going to burn it. And I just had a job of like, because I always, I always thought it would be cool just to have that head, you know, because that was the coolest. That was a cool monster head. So never got it. Never got my monster head.
6: Now, when it came to some of these monsters, who kind of came up with the ideas for those? Who sketched them out? And
8: Well, I sketched the Julie monster. I wanted the monster to have one monster arm, nice tits, which didn't match any of the girls, and the head of the Yemer from 20 Million Miles to Earth, Ray Harryhausen movie. Like That's the head of the Yemer on her. And Tony designed the speaker monster himself. Frank Dietz made an uh, appliance for the girl who pushes the... Guide Counselor out the window, Tony, uh, what else did Tony do on this show? How many? And, and then Dan, we hired these two young kids, Dan Platt and uh, Bill Basso. And when, you, when you're doing a movie for no money, what you do is you say, like when I did The Chitters, I got Steve Wang, who had done The Predator, who had made the suit for The Predator. And I said, I only have $15,000 for this suit, but you can do anything you want with it, and when it's done, you can keep it and use it in another movie. So... When you when you have no money and you want something somebody to do something you have to say to them do what you want and I'll use it so that was what was cool about Black Roses is that they uh, those guys used that stuff you know like they did a really good job and they did a whole you know all these monster suits because I let them design you know the Damien monster and the Damien appliances and uh, Andy Clement who had done the Thor zombie in Rock and in the Zombie Nightmare, right, who now he runs the Dick Smith school. Like Dick, Dick Smith, who did The Exorcist and, you know, Godfather, he's kind of retired. And Andy Clement runs his school. And, uh, you know, so he did the appliances leading up to the Damien Monster. Richie Alonzo, who worked for years at Dan Winston's shop, he did the actual suit, the big suit. Um, so yeah, no, it was cool. It's always cool to see that stuff working in the movie, you know. The only thing that sucks is those zombies that have their big fat bellies because they were not supposed to have those bellies on the suit, and I should have just cut them from the neck down off, you know. But you don't think about it. When somebody shows up and goes, here's the zombies, you don't say, okay, let me take a look at these things. Like, you know, when you're making a movie for no money and you only have so many hours in the theater because that, that part looked stupid with the intestines and the ribs. You should have just, but the heads were fine. Like, I had approved the head sculptures, but I didn't know he was going to put this bib on the front and made them all look like they were fat, not like they were zombies, you know?
6: The makeup at the very beginning when they're playing as the demons is awesome.
8: Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm selling those appliances at a big auction in September. I actually found I still have the unpainted and they're still soft actual appliances. But those two, there was four band members. Two of those were made by Dan Platt. And two of those were, and Dan Platt is, if you've ever seen that movie, I, Robot, the Will Smith movie, he's the face of iRobot. He like, he sculpted the iRobot to be himself. So all those robots are all Dan Platt. And Bill, ba- and Bill Basso worked for Stan Winston for years, and I think he still does. But those guys, that was like their first job, Black Roses. They were kids. They were kids just out of high school. You know, that's what you did back then, is you found people that were talented and hadn't done any of this stuff yet. Because you couldn't pay them. You know, you had to offer them something. I'll give you a head credit. Like everybody that worked at Stan Winston's, when they went to the movie, it said special effects by Stan Winston and their name was at the end. So I could go to Steve Wang and say, look, do this movie, make whatever you want. And it'll say in the beginning of the movie, monster by Steve Wang. Like that was that was what I could give him that he couldn't get from Hollywood. You know, they would give him money, but I could give him uh, that
6: when it came to the music, how did you get some of those bands for the soundtrack?
8: Well, the first movies were all because of Thor. And then Black Roses, Elliot Solomon, who was the son of the distributor at Click and Shapiro House, his name was Alan Solomon, away. Elliot was in bands, and those guys were his friends. The Carmine of Peace was his friend. And so he went and got that music for Black Roses for us from those bands, because we didn't have Thor anymore. And I was like, without Thor, how are we going to get heavy metal? And now Elliot was like, I'll get us heavy metal. You know, nowadays, if you use a song like Ace of Spades, you have to pay like $100,000 to use it in your movie. And you've got to pay every time they show the movie some on TV or something. Back then, you could make a deal for a guy. We're going to use your song, and this, we're paying you this much, and that's it. So that was a, that was a big difference back then. You've got to remember, this is like 1986, before you were born.
6: talking about Black Roses with Mike McBeardo, author of heavy metal movies. So, Mike, we've talked about a handful of heavy metal movies here, especially the Fasano ones. How did you kind of get interested in this topic? The
0: genesis of this was in 2009. A friend of my name, uh, Eric Danville, was putting out a book called The Official Book of Heavy Metal Lists. So I wrote uh, two chapters for it. One was The 13 Greatest Heavy Metal Horror Movies. Because I had been fans of these films from the 80s onwards. And so it was Black Roses, Rock and Roll Nightmare, Hard Rock Zombies. You know, you you know them, you love them. And then the 13 most metal scenes in non-metal movies. And that would be like Twisted Sisters doing the cameos, uh, filming a music video on Pee-wee's Big Adventure. and Marty McFly uh, frying his father's brains with the Van Halen cassette in Back to the Future. And so that was there. And then in 2000, late 2010, an incredible book came out called destroy all movies, the complete history of punks and film. And, um, I just saw this book and I was, I was blown away by it. It was edited by a uh, guy's named uh, Zach Carlson and Brian Connolly from the Alamo draft house. And I was just like, all right, I'm going to write the heavy metal answer book to this. And I went home and pitched it to bazillion points. And, uh, couple of weeks later we were underway three and a half years later we're still underway <laughs> so, june 10th is the official release date
6: what was your criteria when it came to movies that you were going to cover in this because we we've talked to zach uh, way back in one of the early episodes of the projection booth we had zach on and talked about punk rock movies and all this and You're right. It is an exhaustive list of just so many things that are directly related to punk and then kind of, you know, off to the side related. I mean, anytime anybody's got a mohawk or pink hair or anything, it's in that damn book. It is just amazing. So, how did you come about with your criteria for heavy metal movies?
0: You know, I started with the number 666. So, and it was going to be the most metal. So. It was basically, if it contained the music, if it was about the music, so like, you know, the obvious stuff, Spinal Tap, the movie Heavy Metal itself, the cartoon, um, even though it has like uh, Stevie Nicks and some other weird stuff on the soundtrack, you know, clearly that's up there. The real iconic stuff was easy. But then it was, you know, stuff like Nosferatu or Haxon, the silent film from the 20s, that Really had created the primordial ooze from which metal would eventually emerge. Uh, you know, any kind of like, you know, satanic sneaking into arts and popular culture. But also, you know, you think of Nosferatu and the hacks and devil and stuff. Those are used all the time in heavy metal, those specific images. So it was things like that. Thomas Edison's Frankenstein. I'm going back like as far as the book goes. And then up to, you know, like, uh, the sword and, the sword and sorcery movies of the 80s that, look like heavy metal album covers come to life and uh, you know documentaries from decline of Western civilization two to the West of Memphis about the West Memphis three who were uh, heavy metal fans wrongly convicted of murder. And that served 18 years. So it's broad and it's, it's all about isolating the gene of heavy metal that runs through all these movies. And, you know, we talked about like poison before, and I say it's like the way you can hear black Sabbath venom Poison, Slipknot, and the Melvins, and somehow know they're all metal. That's what I tried to isolate in each of these movies.
6: Tried to boil it down to the essence of metal. Exactly. Yeah,
5: the spirit, the attitude, the cojones. Speaking of uh, bands, and you were saying, you know, Iron Maiden has, you know, fifty songs or whatever based on film. Uh, Did you even pull up the uh, film titles that various bands have taken over the years? Oh, sure.
7: Yeah,
0: beginning with beginning with Black Sabbath. Right. Yeah. Which uh the story that's told um in researching this I read it or heard it told by uh Ozzy Osbourne, uh Bill Ward and Geezer Butler. Uh that where they were originally a heavy blues band called Earth and they were recording across the street from a movie theater. Where people were lined up to see Black Sabbath, and they thought, uh, "Well, people really like to pay a lot of money to get scared. Maybe we should scare them with music."
5: And then the others would be, um, I mean, uh, obviously like White Zombie, and right. uh, I mean other bands that also took their names from various uh, various films. Up to and including The Devil Wears Prada,
0: which to me, like, it's like guys—they're a very popular metal, metalcore band currently. And it's like, come on, man! And I, I think they—they're kind of Christian, and uh, they wanted to—they—they uh, they chose that name because they thought it was anti-materialistic. But it's like, dudes, it's the devil wears Prada. <laughs> so,
5: so I think that's, that's in prob- the book. Yeah, that's probably the first metal band to uh, pull up what a Meryl Streep uh, film <laughs> for inspiration.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no uh, Silkwood. Oh, well, that would be a much more metal name. Yeah, I was going to say Silkwood (laughs) or even Ironweed would be Oh, well, Ironweed. There's got to be Ironweeds. Oh, no, I'm going to have to go review a movie called Ironweed now. Sorry to put that on your plate. Well, that's how the book kept growing, was just like people would make comments like that. I'd be like, God damn it. (laughs) And then I'd have to go watch these movies. And it was, I mean, it was awesome. It was great. But it did seem like it was never going to end.
6: Yeah, it seems like you were diving into some pretty deep waters there.
0: Yeah, you know, it was like one title would lead to 10 titles would lead to a director would lead to an actor would lead to a poster. Yeah, it got uh, it got a little maddening for a while there. It's funny and uh tragic. The original announcement of the book was in 2011 and it was like coming in 2012. And it's just like, oh, remember those days, twenty <laughs> <Yeah>. twelve.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> those are those are simpler times. Yeah.
6: Oh, yeah. When I think of heavy metal movies, I think obviously of, of heavy metal, right. which you already mentioned. But uh, two other films kind of come to mind immediately, and those would be um, Monster Dog and Trick or Treat. Sure. Yeah. Would, would both of those qualify, just one? How, how does how would that work? I mean, those are both
0: classic, again, like Black Rose's, uh, metal exploitation. you know, made to cash in on the heavy metal craze of the 80s, and, uh, you know, successfully did so. The Monster Dog, uh, with Alice Cooper as Vince Raven, is a fascinating werewolf film that he shot in the Czech Republic right after he got out of rehab and desperately needed work and something to do so uh he never thought anybody would see it but now he's he has since embraced monster dog and um he plays yeah he plays a rock star uh, who's going uh, into seclusion who may or may not be the werewolf that is killing people on the eastern european estate and uh and then trick or treat was um that was kind of floated like it was going to be a big hit movie and it wasn't but it certainly uh established a cult early and that has uh, Mark Price, who was Skippy Henderson from Family Ties, uh, who shows his ass, and like for a long time in this movie. He uh, is the pretty credible high school metal nerd, and one of his only friends is Gene Simmons, as a late night rock and roll uh, radio disc jockey, and Ozzy Osbourne cameos as a televangelist which uh heavy metal was obsessed with televangelists people forget that i always want to make a compilation album of uh heavy metal anti-televangelist songs
5: you talked about interviewing alice cooper and yeah was was wondering sort of how he was and obviously uh when i was in high school it was that whole cameo he had in wayne's world that uh (laughs) was was the big thing
0: right i mean that is one of the great great heavy metal movie moments ever and um just kind of brought Alice back to you know his place on the rock pantheon I think and just talking to I mean he's you know a dream come true he's the greatest he's sweet he's funny he uh I the interview that runs in the book I said listen I'm just going to throw like a dozen movie titles and just tell me about them and so we did that and uh he talked about the one I was most excited to hear about, which is called sex Ted from 1977 with Mae West. You don't know
6: how many times <laughs> sex Ted has come up on this show. <laughs> I'm happy
0: to hear this.
5: Yeah. Maybe, maybe we just have to give in and do it. It's um, oh, I, I tried to. to watch 10 minutes of it and I shut it off. We, we talked about a little bit about it on our uh, Myra Breckenridge episode, because sure. someone had said that it was sort of a, a similar to Myra Breckenridge. It is
0: definitely a sister film. Yes. All right. So, so what did Alice have to say about Sextat? He said that it was a blast, and that uh, you know Ringo Starr is in it, and Keith Moon was in it, and those were like two of his best drinking buddies. So they were on the set getting loaded all the time, and he shot his scene, and his scene is hilarious. He plays a uh, bellboy who delivers uh, Marla uh, Marlowe Manners is is Mae West's name, so he like brings her like her breakfast or something, and just jumps on top of the piano and starts pounding out this disco song and then like leads this crazy disco dance. And then when he's walking out, he's walking out of the room and Dom DeLuise walks in and goes, Oh, hi Alice. He said that he shot his scene. He was having a great time. And Mae West said to him, well, why don't you come up to my dressing room? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he thought about it for a minute because this would be, you know, a colossal story. And then he said, well, darling, you know, you're eighty four years old, A, and B, I'm not sure you're a woman. <laughs> oh Ouch. Wow. And she said, Well that's never stopped any other man. <laughs> so <laughs> He said he passed and then immediately, like, ran over to Keith and Ringo, and they told him they had had the exact same experience with her.
6: <laughs> so. Alice Cooper was also in another one of the most metal films ever made, which was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Oh, yes, he plays
0: the Sun King. <laughs> yeah. Any good stories from that one? Um he you know, uh he just said it 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 sounded great at the time. He's like think of the Bee Gees are like the big the biggest band in the world, it's the Beatles, it's the greatest album, and you know, a complete disaster. I always think like that movie is like actual cocaine on celluloid. Uh it's so out of control and amazing. Yeah, he said it made it made no sense, and they added the George Burns narration, like, a week before it went to theaters to try to make wow. no sense out of it, to make some sense out of it. So, like, to, to watch that, like, watch it now and imagine it with no narration.
6: That's another one that we should probably cover on the show sometime. I'd support that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the, it was uh, supposed to be Kiss was supposed to be the future villain band that eventually was played by Aerosmith, and they passed so that they could make Kiss makes the Phantom of the Park, meets the Phantom of the Park.
6: Which is one of our favorite movies around here. That was our big 100th episode. Oh, cool. We talked all about that film, yes. Cool. We could not get Kissed to, to talk about it, unfortunately. <laughs>
5: yeah, but we had the next best thing. We had our friend, my friend, who played Paul Stanley in a Kiss cover band, and uh, we figured Perfect. that makes up for yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Less of a hassle, that's for sure. There you go. The other thing I wanted to ask about is um, – You know, people often put the name Heavy Metal on the reference in the Steppenwolf, Born to be Wild. Yeah, yeah. And was wondering that because of that, do you put Easy Rider in the book?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I would say that's, you know, I mean, that's, you know, there's always a debate about where it comes from. Some people say it comes from this, oh, it's a William Burroughs reference, but I mean, that's it. You know, that's really it. That is what codified the term. I mean, it's, it's, you know, bikers screaming up a highway with this, you know, Slamming heavy psychedelic rock band screaming, I like smoke and thunder, I like smoke and lightning, heavy metal thunder. I mean, yeah, that's where heavy
5: metal came from. The other thing I wanted to ask about is documentaries, and obviously The Decline of Western Civilization too is rather well-known and notorious. But I was wondering what you thought of the recent uh, spate of metal documentaries being um, things like heavy metal in Baghdad. And then there were two uh, metal documentaries that this Canadian guy did about sort of where metal comes from and metal fans, and then he did one on sort of metal bands around the world.
0: Yeah, that's uh, Sam Dunn. Uh, They're great. I mean, we're in a golden age of documentaries, period. And metal being weirdly taken seriously by, like, the serious tastemakers, like NPR is constantly covering metal and the New York Times and stuff, has allowed for these films, I believe, to get made. And um, Sam Dunn is enormously talented. The, The next documentary, the one he's been working on for a while, is A History of Satan which I think is just going to kick ass. Um, He actually also just made a movie called Super Duper Alice Cooper, which is playing uh, festivals right now. And it's it's an amazing documentary just about Alice Cooper. Uh, But yeah, that's uh, Metal, A Headbanger's Journey, and Global Metal that you were talking about. There's there's a movie called As the Palaces Burn, uh, which is about Lamb of God and uh, their frontman, Randy Blythe, was charged with manslaughter in the Czech Republic when a uh, kid, a 19 year old kid jumped on the stage and Randy may or may not have pushed him off. And the kid went home and died. And so he went back to uh, the Czech Republic and faced his manslaughter charge. And that documentary is phenomenal. It's great. And if you don't know how, if you don't know how it turned out, I won't, uh, no spoilers here. So that's fine. We can talk about the end of black
6: roses, but not, let's (laughs) not talk
0: about the end of that one.
6: (laughs) I have to say that metal, a headbangers journey, was a very enlightening film for me uh especially because it kind of revealed to me how obsessed with Gene Simmons Ronnie James Dio
0: was <laughs> That's a very interesting point yes
6: That was kind of creepy to me like I wondered if he kind of like hung outside of like Gene's house sometimes you know it just seemed <laughs> like there was something going on there and then the movie was kind of suspect to me Just because they talked a lot about Rush.
0: That was fighting words, that that air of sarcasm there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a huge Rush fan. I thought
5: that That, that was because it was made in Canada and that was the Canadian content they must put in there. (laughs) Oh, okay. You guys uh, are are so close
0: to Canada.
6: Come on, man.
5: That and Anvil, I guess. I don't know. It's Canadian content law. I don't know. (laughs)
6: <laughs> That's why we had to hear a lot of Brian Adams growing up, right? Because of the Canadian right. content laws over yeah, here. The, so.
5: the, the only good thing about Canadian content was I got uh, introduced to the Tragically Hips, So there you go, and I enjoy them.
6: I gotta say, Mike, you did just an amazing job to even just even just cover the the metal documentaries. Is just a, a huge task unto itself. No, so thanks. to do that plus all this other stuff, plus just metal movies like Mad Max and and Conan the Barbarian and all that. Did you do even do like Conan the Destroyer? I did too.
0: Oh uh, yes I did, of course. Conan Holy the Destroyer. Yes. Shit. No, and and Sword and the Sorcerer and Barbarian Queen and Conquest, which is an amazing film. But I highly, highly recommend the Lucio Fulci uh Conan ripoff. Uh, that I can't recommend enough. And uh, yeah, probably, I mean, I don't know, 20 rip-off movies. I mean, th- yeah, this was a big undertaking. <laughs> well, just the rip-offs of The Road Warrior. Oh, yeah. Alone. yeah. yeah. Could, that
6: could be a whole book unto itself. Yeah. Oh, for sure. You're nuts. Thank you.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I should say thank you, but I'll, I agree. My <laughs> wife agrees.
5: Yeah. We always like to ask folks who do these kind of books, what is something that you watched while putting this together that is such a lost gem that you gotta seek it out and you gotta see this that people may not know it's not on the radar.
0: Okay, there's a movie called The Gate, uh, from nineteen eighty-seven that is a PG thirteen kids uh horror movie about an evil backward message on a heavy metal album that when these kids play it opens up the gate to hell in their backyard. And these really super cool stop motion animation homunculi come out of hell and um it's you know we talked earlier about you know cgi to me is the death of cinema so this is this movie is very much alive cinema because they use forced 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 perspective men in suits and puppets and these scary little men terrorize these teenagers and they're like little green goblins and uh then there's a giant hand that chases everybody, and uh, The Gate is a really, really good movie that I'm hoping the book will shine some light on and bring some attention to.
6: And the last I heard of The Gate, uh, I thought Alex Winter was going to be remaking that, the guy from right, Ted's right, Excellent yeah. Adventure. And then that was it. That was like a few years ago, yeah. and the next thing I knew, he was doing that documentary called Downloaded, and I haven't heard a peep since. I don't know what's happening
0: with that. He was also going to remake Porky's for Howard Stern. <laughs> that never happened. I'm kind of glad that one never happened. Yeah, yeah, I'm not into remakes, but God, that would have been awful. Yeah, the Porky's.
6: <laughs> How was that tra- tracking these down? What were some of the hard ones to find for you?
0: Um, They were a lot of hard ones. Uh, You know, I have to say, with the internet, with social media – it's easy, and I bow down, I genuflect to anyone who wrote a reference book before the internet. I can't imagine how any of that was possible.
6: Well, you know, you could have gone the Thomas Weiss route and just made up
0: shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Ouch. Or what's-her-face, uh, Leanne's Spider-Baby, and just, just copied a bunch. But they, she took that off the internet, though, so.
6: More Canadian content, right? There you
5: go. Spider-Baby, <laughs> right. Canadian content. Wow. I was I was going to ask um, in terms of really bad ones. We had a nice time uh, hanging out. Speaking of um, OTC, our good friends over outside the cinema uh, showed uh, Heavy Metal Massacre, and oh, wow. uh, yeah. and was going to ask you about Heavy Metal Massacre and what I call the movie that features the best acting by a palette I've ever seen. <laughs>
0: Heavy metal Massacre is like it's a movie where like time goes backwards as you watch it. It's an incredible vortex that film. Yeah, it's stupefying. It's an experience everyone should have. <laughs> and they, you know, it's not pleasant, but you should get through it.
6: Watching that with the guys from OTC was probably the best way that we could have watched right. that because I don't think I could watch that on my own. I'm not that brave.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I had a job to do, so
5: Wow. We're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show.
2: Intruder entered through kitchen sliding door. Nationwide victims. Yeah, this is Will Graham of the FBI one killer.
7: This is what the subject's teeth look like. Have you ever seen blood in the moonlight one? Well?
1: William, you're going to make yourself sick or get yourself killed.
2: multiple trails just you and me now sport one hunter i'm gonna find you damn it fbi agent will graham manhunter
6: That's right. We'll be back next week with a talk about Michael Mann's Manhunter, where we'll be joined by the mysterious Mr. X as our co-host. Before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest, John Fasano, along with our guest co-host, Mike McBeardo, for stopping by. Mike, for people in the cheap seats, where is the best place to go and pick up your new book, Heavy Metal Movies?
0: Why, heavymetalmovies.com. And if you order from that website, which is the publisher, you will get
5: a fabric patch And a free artisanal barf bag. Wow. Artisanal barf bags. You need that when all those hipsters come around with their artisanal (laughs) toast and jams and other assorted sundry items.
0: I will be going to Hipster Brooklyn tomorrow to uh, actually create the artisanal barf bags up at Bazillion Points, the publisher's headquarters.
5: Excellent. Yeah. yeah, and I got to say I got to give a shout out to them because uh, talking about Michigan content here, they put out the Touch and Go book a couple of years ago with Tesco V and of the sure. and that book is is great. So if yeah. uh, that book is any sign of what you guys got coming down the pipe with this one, I'm looking forward to it. Great. Thank you.
6: Well, thank you. Thanks for being on the show.
5: Yeah. This was great fun and uh can't wait to hear it. All right, well, thanks again for coming on the show, and thanks to everyone for listening. And, of course, go over to iTunes and leave us a review, some stars, so you can go to projection-booth.com and leave comments, and I don't know, maybe let us know what your favorite heavy metal movie is. And once again, keep on rocking.
4: It's cold.
1: I'm gonna tell you a story, a tale of wrong and right, and freedom is the reason. You can't take it without a fight. So now I'm starting up a party to come and look for you. We're gonna put a stop to what's.
7: future of rock and roll one too many buy a
6: homemade one instead before the PMRC closes the stores down and sell them
7: well okay have a nice day